Hey, Peacenicks. I got asked a great question today from a close friend. Why am I doing this podcast? It's a simple question. It's obvious. But it was hard to answer. And there are a lot of reasons. But what's the most important reason that all this matters? I am doing this to change people's minds about drugs. Yes, believe it or not, cannabis isn't the most violence-causing drug in the history of mankind, as was said by Harry Anslinger, father of the war on drugs. I'm doing this because 100,000 people dying in a single year to drug overdose, it's not okay. Spending $58 billion a year to stop people from using drugs, adults from using drugs that they want to use, it's ridiculous. I'm doing this because a place like Portugal that has decriminalized drugs has only six overdoses per million citizens, while the U.S. has 312. I'm doing this because 33,000 people were murdered in Mexico in 2018 because of the illicit drug market created by our war on drugs. Because police brutality. Keith Lamont Scott was shot by police for not cooperating in Charlotte, North Carolina when I was living there in 2016. Why were they harassing him? Because they smelled pot. I'm doing this because here in the land of the free, we have the highest incarceration rate in the world at 750 people per 100,000 citizens. To put that into perspective, Germany has 93. As of 2017, Americans were statistically more likely to die from an opioid overdose than an automobile accident. While opioid addicts with safe access to drugs in Switzerland aren't dying at all and live happy, productive lives. And most importantly, because I am a free-thinking adult who should be treated as such. To quote Terrence McKenna, if the words life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness don't include the right to experiment with your own consciousness, then the Declaration of Independence isn't worth the hemp it was written on. All right, today's guest is John Sharp. He's the Science and Communications Officer with the Beckley Foundation. The Beckley Foundation is a UK-based think tank and UN-accredited NGO dedicated to activating global drug policy reform and initiating scientific research into psychoactive substances. It was a great conversation. If you want to learn more, go to BeckleyFoundation.org. You're going to enjoy this. We did it through Zoom. There was a little bit of a lag, but I think it all turned out very well. So I really hope you enjoy. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Peace on Drugs podcast. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs are menacing our society. Your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the Peace on Drugs. On drugs. All right, so 
So thank you for doing this. Thanks for being on the Peace on Drugs podcast. You're welcome. Good to be here. So um, you are the Science and Communications Officer for Beckley Foundation. Can you just briefly describe uh, the Beckley Foundation for my listeners and, and what you're doing there? Yeah, so we're a UK-based uh, NGO, uh, and we initiate, support, fund, and coordinate psychedelic research around the world uh, through collaborations with various leading research institutions. Um, quite a small team, um, but uh, very efficient with what we do. Um, and we've been kind of involved with a lot of the um, most groundbreaking, most interesting psychedelic studies that we've seen over the past decade or so. All right, that's very cool. So, so we, and you know, over here, when I think of companies like that, I think of maps and, you know, like Rick Doblin had a lot of obstacles he had to, you know, pass to get the research to, to be able to do the research with the drug laws. And so Amanda Fielding was your founder. And what kind of obstacles did the Beckley Foundation have to, um, you know, to get over with the UK laws? Because I don't know how your laws, I know they're similar to ours, but they're different. Yes, I missed a little bit of that question there, uh, but uh, I think I got the gist of it. So, yeah, um, what kind of ways in which the, the drug laws over here might be different? Oh, and how they um, and, and how they kind it's quite of quite a conservative culture, really. Weirdly enough, despite the fact that the UK, you see interviews like this on BBC News sometimes. Don't worry about it. It's obviously uh, <laughs> normal. <laughs> um, yeah. So, the, weirdly, despite the fact that the UK has kind of quite a, a liberal culture or popular culture when it comes to drugs and drug use and uh, kind of has one of the highest rates of, of recreational use in Europe. Um, the mainstream politics and then the culture around it at the higher levels is extremely conservative. So even even the, the left-wing party, the main left-wing party over here, the Labour Party, um, they also are very much against the liberalising of drug laws, um, even even to the extent of, of cannabis. So at the moment, the US is um, far more progressive um, than the UK is when it comes to that kind of thing. So that's why you guys are seeing over there the, the, the clinical trials with, with MAPS and the PTSD, the opening up with Oregon and the uh, decriminalization movement that's going on there, and obviously the legalization of psilocybin therapy uh, in Oregon as well. well various different decriminalized nature um, movements that you've got in different states and jurisdictions uh, around the country. We don't really have that over here. Um, in addition, it's kind of, I think, with, with the different levels of political organization that you have over there, with, with the state level and the, um, the local level, I think the politicians have a much more, a much greater degree of control over their local area. So if we want things to be opened up to make it easier to do research over here, it has to come from the very top level. Um, and at the moment, we have the Conservative Party in power who are repeatedly um, stating that they have no aim or desire to, to change the drug laws at all. Actually, yeah, it, it was very similar at first here with the DEA. When California first started legalizing cannabis, the DEA was shutting it down in different places. And our Obama did, uh, he didn't pass any laws to legalize federally. But what he did was say, we're going to stop arresting when states want to legalize, we're going to allow them to kind of do their own thing. So that's been changing. But on a federal level, we're just like you, even our liberal party, the Democratic Party, they, they have no, they have not shown any um, willingness to ease up on the drug laws. They, they are our newest president. He said he was going to legalize or decriminalize cannabis, but, um, oh, 
just letting my phone's letting me know that this meeting started. It's already started. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so we're, we're on a federal level, very similar to your country, but you're right on a state state by state level, we're seeing a lot of things change for the better. So that's good. Um, so I, and I was going to ask you, but I think you've already answered the question just by uh, how conservative you're saying your country is. I was going to ask you because Amanda Fielding originally wanted to use LSD, but because of its unfortunate nickname, acid, basically psilocybin was a less stigmatized uh, chemical to, to study is. And after 20 years, has that changed at all? Do you think LSD, there's a future for LSD? Yeah, I mean, there probably is. Um, and if you look at the other kind of decriminalization and research movements that you've got going on, there's sort of, uh, you know, start off with things like cannabis, the less controversial ones, maybe move on to ketamine, then maybe move on to naturally occurring psychedelics like psilocybin. And you would think that the next logical step after that might be something like LSD. Certainly, once we start getting the the, the research for, for psilocybin and, 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 the, and the clinics opening up and, uh, and the change in culture around that, then yeah, the, I think we, we could see a future. And certainly it's what we believe in here at the, at the Beckley Foundation and Amanda has always said that um, she believes LSD um, has a lot more to offer and a, and a greater potential for, for psychedelic assisted therapy than psilocybin does. But as you said, um, in the early stages, we went with psilocybin. One, it's naturally occurring that appeals to some people um, and to much less well-known. Okay, magic mushrooms might have been well-known in pop culture, but psilocybin, the chemical name, not so much. But yeah, yeah, LSD, acid um, was kind of tarnished by the, the war on drugs propaganda for sure. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the, the stories that we all heard of the kid that stared at the sun until he went blind and, and all these crazy things that just never happened. And and yet really yeah, jumping off a roof or jumping out of a window or all that kind of nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'm interested in the long-term therapeutic benefits of these drugs. Like you talked about, I think LSD could really be one of the best out there, but for now, psilocybin, they're very similar, uh, similar chemically, but on the Beckley on the Beckley website said uh, psychedelics can break rigid thought patterns that have kept them prisoners of their own mind. And I, and I witnessed this myself with my own psychedelic use, uh, but the, the fact that these can be used like keys to a jail cell, I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're setting people free. I, I, this is such a powerful and amazing thing. Um, can you give us any examples of what you've seen with this, of how it's helped with mental disorders and how, uh, what the future looks like with um, this kind of research? So I only, only caught the last bit of that, of that question, what the future will look like. Could you repeat what you said just uh, yes, the, um, to that? What the future looks like with or, or how, how people do you think will be what kind of disorders will be helped, do you think, with the psychedelic use? And, and actually with psychedelic use, I'm sorry, I'm going to do this a two-part question. I'm curious what, how serious you think the concerns are of schizophrenia with um, psychedelic use. Yeah, so, well, for the first part, in terms of who can benefit, um, obviously, you've got clinical populations, um, depression, anxiety, addiction, um, end of life existential distress you know, mm -hmm. coming to terms with a terminal cancer diagnosis for example uh, potentially even ptsd uh, anorexia um, adhd there are a number of uh, pain management as well there are a number of different applications that we could be seeing this for in a, in a medical clinical context but apart from that i mean we here at the beckley foundation would say that um it should be open to non-clinical populations as well for the, the betterment of, of healthy lifestyle as well and healthy uh, living. So maybe you don't have a, a clinical diagnosis of some kind of um, mental health disorder, but that's not to say that you couldn't benefit from 
psychedelics, psychedelic therapy, um, and so on. I mean, there's obviously a, a trend and a movement and an increasing acceptance of um, psychologically normal, for lack of a better word, or healthy, um, average individuals. You know, there's no should be no shame in, in pursuing um, therapy if, if if they feel that that could benefit them and uh, and improve their quality of life. So um, we think that they should benefit too. Um, we're also in favor of, of decriminalizing recreational use as well. You know, um, that, that was one of the questions that, uh, that they added. Yeah. <laughs> it's not this lag thing. Um, and I was going to say that was and one. Then, so, uh, yeah, I can only apologize for the poor connection. Um, we're kind of uh, out in the sticks here at the Beckley Foundation. So sometimes the internet is not so great. Um, yeah, and in, in terms of the, the 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 fear and concern over schizophrenia, now that's obviously a, a, a big concern and a, and a major problem. Um, there's not been too much modern research into that kind of thing because obviously you 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 don't want to intentionally give psychedelics to any vulnerable population just to see what's going to happen. Um, that being said, there has been some kind of observational research uh, that found that there wasn't a link um, between psychedelic use, lifetime psychedelic use uh, between the ages of 18 and 35 and increased risk of schizophrenia or schizotypy, schizophrenia-like tendencies, found no link between the two. That being said, um, it's certainly not recommended that people who have a predisposition towards psychosis, schizophrenia, uh, etc. Uh, it's not recommended that they take psychedelic drugs, certainly until we know more about the link between the two. And it's going to be something that obviously that's a, a bridge that's going to have to be crossed at some point if these medicines are going to start working their way into the mainstream. Um, then that will have to be examined closely and carefully. Yeah. But the, the risks are possibly overblown in terms of like, you know, healthy uh, individual with, with, with no prior concerns of, uh, and, and, and of psychosis or, or anything like that is extremely unlikely as, as far as I'm concerned to, to develop schizophrenia suddenly after, after going on an acid trip or something like that. Yeah, I, I agree. And from what I've read, I mean, there's the whole thing, right? Correlation doesn't prove causation. People tend to start using psychedelics around their, you know, late teens, early twenties. And that's also when people with, with a schizophrenic diagnosis would also discover that. So there could be that connection. Also in the sixties, there was a huge, um, you know, a, a jump in the amount of people, a percentage of people that were using psychedelics. And we saw no jump in the general population with schizophrenic diagnosis. It was still one out of a hundred, the same as it is today. So those kind of numbers to me kind of really make me lean towards the idea that the schizophrenia thing is definitely, I think it's overblown, but I do think, like you said, it's too important to just say, ah, it's overblown. Let's just go full throttle. We have to still be careful, but I do think that we're going to see that there's that the connection there is not as significant if at all. Yeah. I mean, it's also important to bear in mind that there's a, there's a link between excessive alcohol use and development of psychosis as well, but that doesn't get talked about at all. Does it? It doesn't. And also the PTSD that children suffer with alcoholic parents, people that are around people that use alcohol have these other these illnesses and things like mental illnesses that come from having an abusive yeah. parent. So and alcohol is obviously, I've always said, I think it's one of the hardest and most dangerous drugs out there. It can be fun if you use it safely. I do use it safely, um, but I've also seen it ruin people's lives. So, but um, back to what you said about 
the the betterment of well people. That's something I stand by that I think that just because you don't have a mental disorder doesn't mean you can't benefit from the effects of psychedelics. And I think that, um, like, for instance, the end of end of life patients that we've seen that have been helped with uh, end of life anxiety, they give the they give the mushroom trials to the people that are terminal. But what about their their loved ones, someone who's been married to someone for 50 years? The person dying is now comfortable with that. But the person who's married to them has to lose the person they love. And they've got no benefits that they could get from also being a part of those clinical trials. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Um, I mean, when you're saying that, that rings a bell. I don't know whether there's a group that have either started uh, looking into that or at least started the steps of, uh, of trying to get approval to do a trial like that. I think it might be a group in Canada, but um, that rings a bell. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, sometimes you often find that um, the individual going through the, the, the diagnosis and dealing with it sometimes deals with it better than the, the loved ones around them. You know, if, if they come to terms with their own death, um, better than, than 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 average doesn't necessarily mean that their wife husband partner kids parents um will have the same kind of uh of acceptance yeah they need the support as well yep yeah so i think that as we move forward i think that we need to open up the doors we, you know we don't need to keep it so tight of who we're allowing to use these things because i think so many people could benefit from them and um i know that so the research was outlawed here for about 30 years. Uh, I think MAPS was the first to get granted um, the uh, license to do some of this research. Uh, it was UK about the same, about 30 years of research that was lost due to these laws and possibly you're still losing. Um, in terms of when things closed up, it was about 1970, when, 1971 when the Misuse of Drugs Act was passed over here that uh, kind of widely criminalized um, possession and, and supply of, of drugs, including psychedelics. Um, in terms of when things started opening up, um, well, that would probably be when, when the Beckley Imperial program started pursuing the research and, and managed to get the approval for it. So we're looking around about 2008 was when uh, the Beckley Imperial psychedelic research program was first founded, with Amanda Fielding and, and David Nutt as, uh, as co-founders. And that was when we started seeing the, the increase in, in research over here largely at Imperial College, or initially exclusively at Imperial College. Well, so that's almost 40 years lost of research. And I just, I wonder how much not only therapeutic benefits we've lost, but I, I feel like psychedelics could teach us, we have a lot more to understand about our own consciousness that, that is hard to study, but through psychedelics, there's so much, so much that we've lost in 39 years that you, of research that, that could have been done. Yeah, 50 years of potentially lost science potentially lost culture i mean if you think of all the kind of cultural breakthroughs that happened in the 1960s in terms of music and art and environmentalism and uh, equal rights and so on and the potential influence that uh, the psychedelics had on those cultural developments we've missed out on decades and decades of, of who knows what yeah that's right and like you said this uh the environmental movements that have happened psychedelics have a a really great way of just reconnecting people with nature. When I do, you know, because you have that feeling, you realize that you you need the earth, you need oxygen, you need water, you need everything that the earth provides, that we are a part of the earth. And that feeling can make people care more about the earth. Right now we have a huge problem across the globe, climate change, and people just don't care. So this is another positive side of these of these substances that if people would use therapeutically, maybe they could care more about the environment. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it kind of comes in with with the the eager dissolution and the breakdown of the self and the fact that you you can start to identify with your yeah your fellow man, but also your wider environment and nature as well. You break down those boundaries that are at the end of the day artificial boundaries. Um, there is some controversy over that kind of stuff because some people might be less than comfortable with the notion that perhaps psychedelics or the drugs can can change your belief system and and obviously the environmental movement has become unfortunately quite politicized where it's you know one side entrenched on on here and then the other side over there just disagreeing on 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 all sorts and um the ia you you open yourself up to a little bit of criticism that maybe people are trying to 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 medicate away um certain political beliefs so you have to tread carefully on 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 that kind of uh, messaging. But yeah, I mean, it is, we have observed that it does increase um, feelings of connectedness with nature. And from that, nature and, and experiencing nature and going out in nature has been shown to be correlated with positive mental health. So above and beyond the direct effects that psychedelics can have on mental health, if it makes you go out in nature and appreciate nature more, that could have a, an additional synergistic benefit and, and, a, and improve mental health even more in a long-term way in changing lifestyle habits and so on <clears throat> yeah so the uh there's a religious aspect of all this too and i think that's something that scares people that, and why i mean the christian the christian right here they are anti-environmental laws most of them and i think they're also a big pushback against the drug laws changing and they were also you know the the conquistadors that came over here I don't know, hundreds of years ago were the reason drugs were first outlawed the psychedelics they didn't want these psychedelics that were more powerful than their own religious things that they were offering the Eucharist and all this. So they started outlawing some of these drugs to to convert the natives, and it was hard to do without that. And I feel like they want that control, and that they they might lose some of it with some of these substances. Does the UK have the the same kind of religious uh, culture that we have here? Very similar. Was that uh, does the UK have the same religious culture? Yeah. We're very, very, we have a, a very strong, you have to say that you're a Christian or you would not be elected at all. You have to, you know, you hold up your Bible. You have to do these things because you'll lose so many votes. Right. Yeah, no, it, it, it doesn't. Um, you know, the UK and, and, and the US share a lot of, of cultural similarities, but that's one thing that um, that is different, which is strange because we don't have that official separation of church and state quite to the the same extent um you know the archbishops sit in the house of lords for example and and so does the chief rabbi and and so on um in terms of the the political influence of of the church it's negligible um you don't have to say that you're a christian to, to to get elected um it doesn't play a part in political debate or or anything like that um I'm speaking from an, an English point of view. Um, I don't know whether, for example, in, in places like Northern Ireland, there may be a, a, a more religious uh, leaning to to discussion, but certainly not over here. That's fascinating. And the idea that we have separation of church and state, and yet it doesn't seem on its surface that it, that's the case at all. And, um, and I just also the fact that our drug laws are easing up more than yours. And yet we have all these, these religious groups on this, in this country, maybe the separation of church and state actually does help in some areas with law making. I don't know. 
Yeah, I mean, in certain respects, it, it is surprising from from a European perspective that America has so quickly turned around on in terms of its attitude to the war on drugs. I mean, and it's surprising in a good way. It's um, impressive. It's you wouldn't have thought it going back 10, 15 years ago with the attitude to cannabis and then, as you say, with the religious right and so on. Um, so it's really great to see. And actually, um, I'm myself and I know plenty of people are quite jealous of the uh, developments that are taking place in the US and thinking, if they can do it, why the heck can't we? Yeah, well, also in Europe, there's a lot uh, uh, like Portugal and Spain that are far beyond the United States and, and their drug policies. And I, I'm jealous of them. So, and you're, you know, you're closer to them, I would, you know, at least geographically. And I was wondering, you know, what stops you from at least doing like a decriminalization the way Oregon's done here and the way Portugal and Spain has done? Yeah, it's the political will. It's just not there. There's, um, there's been decades of, of propaganda in the press, you know, the drugs are bad message, the Regan sort of era messaging of uh, it'll fry your brain and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, certainly in the right wing press and, and the, the papers have, have a lot of influence over political discussion and, and the agenda over here. Um, it's starting to change. For example, if you take something like the Daily Mail, uh, only five years ago, we're very critical of, of the Beckley Foundation and, and of Amanda Fielding's work. And then as recently as this year, they've started to change their tone and, uh, and, and be a little bit more open to some of the things that we've been saying. Um, I'm not sure exactly why. There's the, the, someone could probably do a, a, a master's thesis or a PhD thesis on what the hell's going on with the UK political culture and why um, they're so closed off to drugs. I don't know whether it's the pervading kind of lasting influence of that kind of Victorian moralistic attitude um whether there's a racial element to it uh, whether it's just fear of change and an inherently kind of conservative mindset when it comes to cultural change or a combination of all of them um it's it's difficult to say but certainly like you often find that the politicians the leading politicians will be very anti-drug reform um uh, while they're in office and then after they leave office then suddenly they're they're more open to the idea um so I guess they've done the they've done the numbers, worked the numbers, and and figured we're not going to get votes by by pushing this, which is strange because we're just seeing now in in Germany the new coalition government over there are going to are going to legalize cannabis, and uh, public support for the legalization of cannabis um, is much lower in Germany than it actually is in the UK, so it does boggle the mind a little bit as to why the the politicians won't kind of grow a backbone and uh and push this uh, legislation and this kind of movement forward because people can benefit yeah now i know one of the big reasons in our country and i don't know how money plays in the, into the politics there but big pharma here has a lot of money invested that they would lose if people can can grow something in their backyard that cures a lot of their ailments and then big pharma loses a lot of money so that's been a big i think that's the reason our federal government hasn't done anything about it is do you guys have something similar like that happening there Probably, <laughs> probably it gets more of a kind of uh, more attention in the USA, but you know, money talks everywhere. Right. So the, there's, there's a chance that that's played a part. Um, but it's difficult to say. <laughs> gotcha. And, and also you're talking about the propaganda. I was wondering, cause here in the United States, the propaganda wasn't just from the government and from reefer madness. It was putting it in, into our television programming where you'd have that 
more that good more that episode where there was a moral at the end of the story of not to do drugs somebody got high and started ruining their life and the friend came in and helped them and every popular show has that episode or a few of those episodes where they just really make drugs look like the enemy and then the moral is oh the hero came in and saved their friend from this horrible life of drug use and do you guys have a lot of that propaganda within your television programming gosh i can't think of anything off the top of my head that um that has that kind of message but um um uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I can't think of anything though. But obviously, I mean, a lot of um, a lot of the TV that we get over here is actually American. You know, there's uh, oh, so, so, so you get... even just the American culture. If if it's been in American TV programming, then it will have been absorbed um, into into the British kind of pop psychology and culture and, and mentality as well. Gotcha. Yeah, we have a our our programming. Actually, we started the war on drugs. So really we've influenced the whole world with moving towards this anti-drug policies that have got, gone to the extreme in Asia. And also, so the United, United Nations, actually, if you're a member of the United Nations, you're, that's another reason the U.S. federally might not be legalizing cannabis is because you're not supposed to legalize drugs if you're a member of the United Nations. So we, all the, the states in the United States are actually in violation. But I feel like if the U.S. were to just say, or even if you, the UK, a country of that magnitude, were to just say we're we're legalizing, the United Nations might have to look at their laws and go, all right, this isn't going to work if these countries aren't willing to follow. Yeah, absolutely. And and the UN didn't ban the the drugs in isolation, and they didn't do it without any pressure as well. As you say, the US started the war on drugs. The US influenced the UN decision to pass those kind of conventions. Um, so if the, if the U S wanted to roll back on it, I'm sure that, that you guys have the clout to do that. Absolutely. And we could dictate the new policies around the world. I don't know that we can change what's happening in Asia, places like the Philippines, where they're just executing people for, for even possessing their personal amounts of drugs. And that's really sad what's happening over there. And, and as this populist movement kind of has been going across the, the world, our own last president said, you know, he congratulated Duterte for his handling of those drug criminals, which is really scary. The idea that it's okay to murder nonviolent people. Um, I hope that we don't see the world going in that direction. I really hope we can go, like you say, Germany's legalizing cannabis. I just, I didn't know that. That's great news. I'm going to have to look into that. But um, um, so John, before I go, because I won't keep you for too much longer, I just wanted to ask you um, first, is there anything that I should have asked you about the Beckley Foundation that maybe I didn't ask or, or that you want to talk about? Well, I'm always more than happy to talk about the the, the, the research that we do and the research that we have done. But, um, you know, your podcast, your show, your rules, whatever you uh, whatever you find interesting, whatever you think that the guys who listen to your, your podcast uh, would find interesting, I'm happy to talk about. Let's talk about that. Let's get, because we've talked about the war on drugs and all these other things, but let's, we haven't really got into much about the Beckley Foundation itself. So, yeah, why don't you just explain to my listeners what, what you've, you know, what you've been discovering, what you've been finding there. And yeah. So, um, I mean, I would like to think that we, we played a, a very big role in, uh, in the, in, in the current psychedelic Renaissance as it's referred to. Um, and that a lot of the changes that we're actually seeing in the U S in terms of, um, increasing acceptance of, of, of psilocybin specifically wouldn't have happened without the research that we did over here. So we carried out the very first in collaboration with, with Imperial college, London, uh, the very first neuroimaging studies with psilocybin, the first neuroimaging studies with LSD, 
the original open label pilot study that showed that psilocybin could have benefits for treatment resistant depression. And obviously that's proven to be hugely influential at the moment um, and is getting a lot of attention. The, the FDA over, over in the States, I think it was last year or maybe the year before granting that breakthrough status. Um, so fast tracking and supporting the development of psilocybin therapy into a, a licensed treatment. Um, we were involved in the early Johns Hopkins uh, um, psilocybin for smoking cessation trial. So back in the 1960s, Amanda found that um, well, she was addicted to, to smoking and, and found that she, she wanted to quit. Um, went into a, an, LSD, an LSD trip with, with a firm intention of, of quitting that habit and, and was able to, to kick it. So later when, uh, when she was speaking with, with Roland Griffiths over at Johns Hopkins, she suggested you know, maybe that would be something that could be uh, worth looking into. Carried out again a very small um, open label uh, initial pilot trial. It was something like 80% of the participants in that trial uh, had, had, had quit smoking after six months. Um, and still, I mean, you know, had continued to be absent from smoking six months after the end of the trial, which is by far and away more effective than, um, say, nicotine patches or, or gum or cold turkey or, or whatever other strategy people might want to employ. And now, um, fantastically, Johns Hopkins have got a massive surge of funding from the federal government, from, from NIDA, I believe, uh, to carry out uh, a big trial at three different universities you know, over in the USA and NYU. And, uh, and the University of Alabama and, uh, and Johns Hopkins themselves to develop to develop that research further. So we're we're very proud to have been involved in the, the early stages of, uh, of a lot of the big developments that are going on in the psychedelic sp uh, sphere. You know, we're only a small team, so unfortunately, it's, it's difficult for us to then pick it up and develop it and run with it and, and scale it up to the extent that. that other groups could potentially do so. So we try to stay light on our feet, nimble and, and keep moving forward, trying to find new uh, things that we can do. And then if people run with it, then, then that's great. That's awesome. And what you said about setting intention, you know, when the, the people that were able to quit smoking cigarettes set, you know, set the attention before the trip and then they, they benefit from it. And a lot of people have actually been able to use this uh, strategy to quit smoking, which is really hard to do. And I'm just wondering what other things, I mean, people could set an intention with the trip and to get, get a healthier diet, to get more into exercise, to maybe accept a parent for who they are that they haven't gotten along with, or to set goals and accomplish goals. I think just setting an intention, we could use that strategy for all sorts of things to help make people have better lives. Absolutely. Um, there's a, there's a kind of a maxim in neuroscience that, that, that uh, sells fire together wire together and you end up with with connections being formed and just over time just get strengthened and strengthened and strengthened and in an addictive habit or an addiction or, or a substance use problem you've got connections in your brain that have just been so well trodden that um it's it's difficult to get out of that groove and the analogy that the amanda likes to use is, is psychedelics are like sh shaking up a snow globe you've probably heard that, that expression mm -hmm. before that uh where there was these tracks in the snow um, suddenly you can, you can, you can get rid of that and, and, and have some new fresh snow lay down and you can, you can forge a new path forward. And as you say, the, the applications for that, well, where, you know, where does it end? Any, any unhealthy habit that you, that you would like to, to break, yep. it could be huge because just think of the number of different problems that humanity has that are just caused by unhealthy habits, unhelpful habits.
Yeah, that's right. And I, and I like the snow globe analogy. I, I, I think I first heard it in Michael Poland's book where he talked about it, about just the, you know, every thought that you have, especially the older we get, the deeper those grooves get of these just rigid ideas. And if you can just level that snow out, then you might, you can still go down the same thought pat, pattern if you want to, but you'll have actually have a choice there. It won't be just something that you're just, you know, held to. So I think that that's a really powerful thing about these plant medicines or however you want to describe them. I, um, I've been using psychedelics for years. It started for me with um, more of the going to concerts and recreational use that I didn't understand because I was too young to understand it. And as I got older, I, I kind of realized the benefits by accident, just realizing I had a really good trip. And then the next day I felt happier and I, and I started, you know, I'll give you an example. My, one of my best friends and I used to go to Asheville right out of high school. We would go to Asheville, North Carolina in the mountains to this college and they had much, and we would do mushrooms with the, with the kind of hippie kids. And, and we were two of the kids we grew up with, we were the only two that would do this. And we're also the only two of the kids that we grew up with who are no longer living in Gastonia, North Carolina and have a career outside of that place. And a lot of our friends we grew up with didn't fare so well with the, with the drug culture there. They ended up in prison or dead. And I do think that just our experience with doing those mushrooms really kind of opened our mind enough to not be stuck in that same place as some of the people that got lost in that. So Mm. yeah okay. that definitely sounds like something that, that you could benefit from for sure so one last question um how long do you think it'll be in the uk before the general public actually has the uh, you know access to some of these um you know therapeutic benefits of these drugs oh difficult difficult question um i would say hopefully within the next five to ten years I mean, we'll probably see the access to them in, in a medicalized sense much sooner than we'll see real meaningful reform um, in a recreational sense. The problem, as you know, you can sometimes see in the, in the cannabis space, is that if we exclusively go down the medicalization route, it can actually close some of the doors towards um, a decriminalization movement in a more wider sense. So we're already seeing the first uh, ketamine clinics opening up in the UK. So, so providing ketamine assisted therapy for depression, addiction, and so on, um, which is kind of laying the, the groundwork for hopefully psilocybin in the future. And I imagine once if, if psilocybin is regulated over here as a medicine, then they will be well-placed to, to take advantage, to capitalize on that. And hopefully we obviously, we have a nationalized public health, system over here so ideally we'd want to see them on the nhs as well because it's no good these medicines being only available to people who can afford them and go to private clinics um that's just not good i mean you see the correlation between social deprivation inequality and the incidence of mental health problems so if, if we're only giving it to the to the richest then it's meaningless so we do need them to be available on the nhs um, and hopefully we will see that. So I, I, I think optimistically five, maybe at most 10 years until we see them um, as a medicine. But then again, in terms of recreational use, could be the same, could be longer. It really depends whether the politicians decide that they're going to uh, grow a backbone. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Now the ketamine clinics, um, exactly. I've been talking exactly about what you were just saying. I just talked about it in my last podcast about the ketamine clinics. Uh, I think they can really be helpful for people, but that's if you have $4,000 that, that your insurance won't cover any of it. So if you have $4,000 to go drop in a place, then you're fine. But if you're homeless that and you could benefit from ketamine, well, good luck. 
And so that's a problem. Also, the guy, last guy I talked to is a psychedelic journalist, Riley Caps, and he said that problem with one of the problems he's seen with ketamine also is that it itself can be addicting and some of the doctors are getting addicted to it and that's why he sees psilocybin as a much better uh, chemical to use in these in these clinics because it's not addicting and it's not as habit forming so what do you think about that um yeah i mean ketamine i think in my opinion is only being used in these clinics because it's already used as an anesthetic so that the, the groundwork's already been laid it's already available it's already acknowledged it's much more difficult to to get a brand new medicine through that process and, and accepted um i'm sure that if the powers that be you know had been able to to prevent the ketamine clinics then then they, they probably would have to be fair um, in terms of its potential for um, downsides and problems, yeah, I mean, ketamine does seem to have a lot more of these uh, physical effects, certainly if you, if you look at anecdotal recreational um, reports. Um, the bad trips from ketamine and, and psilocybin are of a very different nature, um, but there does seem to be a bit more danger associated with, with, with excessive ketamine use as far as I'm I'm concerned, but obviously in a therapeutic context, I mean, when you're taking it in a clinic, I don't think that would ever be too much of a concern, but you never know. Gotcha. Yeah, because it is used to also treat addiction, people that have opiate addicts that have actually been helped with ketamine. So, and I think a ketamine, uh, a ketamine habit would be less life-threatening than an opiate addiction to something like a fentanyl or something like that. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably. I mean, uh, there's some um, problems with the, the urinary system as well, I believe, with ketamine, if with excessive long-term ketamine use. And uh, as far as we know, there are no physical problems associated with, uh, with long-term psychedelic use, although, although there is some talk of a potential effect on a certain receptor in the heart that, that does need looking into if, uh, if psychedelics are going to go mainstream. Well, this is all very exciting stuff. The, um, the idea that psychedelics are moving into the possibility of people having access to them without the risk of being arrested or having to do it without any guidance. Like, you know, I, I think my first trip, I was 16. There was no guidance other than the other kid that was, I was doing it with. And that can be a scary situation as it was at first. So I think that we're, uh, it's exciting that the world, as we're seeing the world change slowly. And I mean, a while yet, it's a little bit of a scary situation, getting it exclusively from your peers. I suppose that there's, Something to be said for the fact that, 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 that throughout the prohibition, there's always been people who have been willing to, to experiment with these substances and have had the, the courage and the, and the uh, free thinking nature to say, no, I think people can benefit from these and we need to look into them, whether they did it themselves in a, in a personal capacity or whether they decided to then spread that message and try and fight against the, the pervading kind of uh, wisdom or lack of wisdom, as, as, as the case may be. Um, so it's a kind of a testament to, to, I think, a lot of the people who, who stuck at it through that time. I'm too young to really have been um, in that kind of 70s, 80s period of time where, where that was, uh, was, the, was the real pervading message. You know, I was in university in 2012 when things were actually finally starting to, to open up. So, so. Actually, so yeah, I, I grew up in the 90s. So things were, um, I don't know, they, they, it was a different world than there wasn't the internet. There, it was just a, a, a strange time with it, within the drug culture. And like I say, I've had friends I grew up with who didn't fare well in that. And 
I think I'm, I'm very thankful that I got where I am in life. And, that, and that's the thing I think that the powers to be needs to understand is that these drugs are still here. You're not doing anything to get rid of them. You're just making them a lot more dangerous for those who choose to use them. And I think it's, if you're, this is their job, if they're in power to protect the people that they're overseeing and they're doing a really bad job with this drug war because it's not protecting anybody. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just in it increases the likelihood that people are just going to start taking either drugs that are cut with something else. Certainly that's a problem with drugs like MDMA. It's less of a problem with psychedelics, but that's not to say that it, it, it isn't, uh, there isn't a problem with, with uh, uh, contamination with, with other substances. Um, and you also see these like novel um, psychoactive substances emerging, things like synthetic cannabinoids or, or variations on, on, on psychedelics. Um, Obviously, in, in, in terms of the harder core stuff, your crocodile in term, instead of heroin and, and things like that, that people would just not be using if uh, if regular mainstream uh, drugs were were available and and uh, legally regulated to ensure the, the purity and to ensure that it doesn't go over a maximum strength. It's crazy that we haven't learned the lessons of, of alcohol prohibition um, in the US in the 30s or whenever it was. I'm mad that we, we were just repeating the same... Um, same mistakes with other substances and assuming it will pan out differently. Yeah, I agree. We, um, I mean, what we've seen with the synthetic cannabinoids, they're, they're more addicting. They can actually be lethal versus traditional cannabis can't. And there was a study done with like 2,500 cannabis and synthetic cannabis users. And 93% of them said they preferred traditional cannabis. The reason, the reasons they were using the stuff like K2 and these synthetic cannabinoids is because it wouldn't show up in drug tests. Some of them were on probation, so they could they could still get high, but not have to worry about failing a drug test. So we're pushing people who already have problems, who are in the system, to doing worse drugs because they can get away with it. And they're more addicting. They actually have withdrawal from them. They get really sick. One person said that the synthetic cannabinoids withdrawal was worse than heroin. So and there's no reason why they shouldn't have access to being able to smoke traditional cannabis. Yeah, it's uh, it's atrocious, isn't it? Um, it's absolute madness. But as you, I mean, you said, that the politicians that the main role, uh, that main role, and, and uh, their priority should be reducing harm. But I think that the evidence shows over the past fifty years that clearly that's not their first and foremost priority. If it was, then they they would have been pursuing a decriminalization or a legalization or or something. The very fact that they don't means that they must have other priorities, whether those priorities are, as you said, big pharma or whether it's just to get themselves elected because they're just following whatever the public um, believe without without kind of having the balls to, 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 to say, no, this is wrong. We, well, we looked at the evidence from our, from our expert advisors and it shows X, Y, Z. Um, I mean, that's an issue with, with, the, with the culture is it's not always that the, the criminalization means that researchers can't research these substances it's technically possible but there are just so many hoops whether they be bureaucratic hoops that you have to jump through financial hoops to get a, to pay for the licenses uh, or to pay for the extra security that you need to have in your lab to store the substances uh, or the extra staff that might be required but there's also just the culture you know if, if you're a, a researcher and you want to get a, a grant approved for uh, for your research then 20 years ago if you'd walked into the the office of the of the person making that decision and said hey i want to look at uh, at lsd then you you might be potentially jeopardizing your your career there um just for the fact that it'd be like whoa you know he's this crazy druggie who wants to uh who wants to research this awful uh, substance 
And the crazy thing to me is these substances are the reason they're so powerful and what they do is that they so they're so similar to our own endogenous chemicals in our own brain, like serotonin. I, I, so these these chemicals clearly have a reason why they they want to. I feel like they want to be symbiotic with the human consciousness, and that they're there for a purpose. In my opinion, I know that's a just an opinion, but I do think that the reason the mushrooms have these chemicals is that for whatever reason they they want to communicate with us. And I know that's a very you know, hippie kind of statement, but I, I, I believe that. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a perfectly valid belief. I mean, well, it's one of those, one of those beliefs that uh, if you hold it, it's not going to hold, it's not really going to cause any harm to anyone, is it? So it's uh, a personal opinion. Um, I don't, I don't tend to, to sway that way, but uh, from my point of view, it's, it's just uh, absolutely crazy that, that the government should think that they can criminalize possession of a, of a naturally occurring plant. Um, that causes no harm okay maybe if the plant has uh, uses in producing some kind of neurotoxin that could be used for crimes or whatever okay then maybe there could be an argument there but a plant that causes no harm to anybody uh, um and that you can just well I mean, or potentially a fungus that causes no harm to anybody that you can just go out in the autumn and and, and pick from the ground and, and eat absolutely crazy that it would be um criminalized it's insane it is like you said if there was a chemical that could actually cause you to do harm to somebody and that makes me think of in our country we have the second amendment so you have a right to have guns which you can use to kill somebody but we don't have a right to a plant that grows naturally and i was reading something that said it might have been terence mckenna that said it i'm not sure but basically the founding fathers would have included the right to natural plants if they thought it ever would have been a problem but it never even occurred to them that that would ever be outlawed so why would they include some some right like that that was just so inherent you know yeah yeah um potentially i mean i i don't know enough about the uh kind of views of the of the founding fathers on those kind of issues um but it i think it, there is just also a a human tendency to to distrust new things um particularly if they've come over from other cultures i mean i know for for instance that in the uk when uh tobacco was first introduced from from south america so back in the 16th century or what have you um it was uh, considered potentially a sort of devil's uh, devil's drug you know used by witches it was associated with witchcraft naturally uh, naturally natural, king james the first second third i can't remember which wrote wrote about the evils of, of tobacco and how it's uh, associated with witchcraft and so on and you see so you see a lot of the the same kind of nonsensical arguments <laughs> reappearing with with cannabis and and, and other drugs so I suppose there are, there, are, there are positives to be gleaned from that in the fact that, that um, tobacco later became um, widespread, although obviously with the health concerns associated with that, there are also lessons to be learned on how we can best integrate, you know, drugs from other cultures in a, in a sensible um, and moderate way. Yeah, I even read the past about England with their caffeine laws when they when coffee was first brought over that some of the workers started to kind of unionize at the coffee shops and were um were uh, you know unionizing and then england actually tried to outlaw uh coffee and tea but it didn't work because it was already so popular at that point that they kind of just didn't go that route but yeah so any any drug that they think that people might use against the powers to be is something they try to they want they want out of their out of their way anyway so I just want to say before before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to this conversation? No, I think we've uh, we've covered most of the bases there. 
All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. I know we've been kind of going back and forth to trying to get the right time. So, so I'm glad this one finally worked out. And again, thank you so much. Yeah, I apologize. That was, uh, I was entirely uh, um, on my my part there. So I apologize for any uh, kind of inconvenience there. But I'm glad we finally got to do it. Yeah. I mean, I suppose if there is one more thing that I could say, it's that if, if people want to find out more information about what we do, we do have a website, you know, www.beckleyfoundation.org. So that's B-E-C-K-L-E-Y. And we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, you know, the usual, the usual trio. So if you want to find out any information, then you can you can do so over there. All right. Thank you so much. It was good talking to you. Hopefully we can talk again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Pleasure talking to you. All right. Peace, Nicks. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter, Peace on Drugs Podcast. Go on Apple, give us a five-star rating and follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com to subscribe and peace out. Out, out, out.